Greetings and welcome on behalf of Lumen Christi Institute and the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago. My name is Tom Donnelly. I serve as a state trial judge here in Chicago, a board member of the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago, and I'm a longtime friend of Lumen Christi. You can learn more about Lumen Christi, including upcoming events this week on architecture in the Renaissance and evolution and the human person by visiting www.lumenchristi.org. The events in this past month with the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmad Aubrey and so many others serve as a reminder that we must work to hold difficult conversations about the ongoing legacy of racism in our communities, our legal institutions, our churches, and ourselves. For many of us, that conversation begins by listening more attentively. I want to thank our co-sponsors, America Media, the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago, the Hank Center at Loyola University of Chicago, and Boston College for helping make tonight's event a success. It is fitting, especially on this, the feast of St. Thomas More, patron saint of lawyers, that we address the question of race, justice, and Catholicism by inviting renowned legal scholars to help us look at our church, our community, and our country. Our conversation tonight features Dean Vincent Rougeau and Professor, Professor Hershella Conyers, and will be moderated by Dean Eduardo Penalver. For the sake of time, I will only briefly introduce them, but you can find their full bios on the event page online. Hershella G. Conyers is a clinical professor of law and the director of the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. Professor Conyers co-teaches the intensive trial practice workshop and a seminar called Life and Death in the Law. Before joining the law school faculty, Professor Conyers served as an assistant public defender in the Cook County Public Defender's Office where I met her uh, in the hallways of 13th in Michigan in 1988 as another assistant public defender. She mostly, however, handled capital cases. Professor Conyers is a graduate of both the University of Chicago's college and law school. Vincent Rougeau became Dean of Boston College Law School in July of 2011. He previously served as a professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at Notre Dame Law School. Dean Rougeau is president-elect of the Association of American Law Schools and serves as a member of its executive committee. An expert in Catholic social thought, Dean Rougeau's current scholarly work considers the relationships among religious identity, citizenship, and membership in highly mobile and increasingly multicultural democratic societies. In June 2020, Dean Rougeau was named the inaugural director of Boston College Forum on Racial Justice in America by University President William Leahy, SJ. It is a pleasure to welcome back to Lumen Christi, our moderator tonight. Eduardo M. Penalver is the Alan R. Tesler Dean and Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. He previously served as the John P. Wilson Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. He holds a BA 
from Cornell University and a JD from Yale Law School. Between college and law school, he studied philosophy and theology as a Rhodes Scholar at Oriel College, Oxford. Dean Penalver clerked for Judge Guido Calabresi on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Penalver's books include Property Outlaws and An Introduction to Property Theory. After our moderated conversation, there will be time for Q&A from the audience. You can ask your questions at any time by using the Q&A feature in Zoom. If you are joining us by YouTube, you can email the Lumen Christi address listed in the description of the live stream. Eduardo, I'll now hand it over to you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. It's, it's wonderful to be back here uh, virtually, I guess, uh, in Chicago and with Lumen Christi. Uh, and a real privilege to uh, moderate this panel between our distinguished uh, discussants. Um, uh, what I'd like to do, I thought a, a good place for us to start would be um, to just give each of you an opportunity to talk about your experiences uh, with race and racism as African-Americans within, within the American Catholic Church. Um, Hershella, would you, you want to get, get us started? Yeah. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm happy to be here with you. And I am telling this uh, small vignette because I told it to Tom years ago, and he remembered it. And this is the one he asked me to tell. So as an, uh, a young child, I attended Catholic school in a predominantly Black neighborhood. My family moved to Chatham, which was a neighborhood that had experienced white flight. And so there were homes and lawns and gardens. And the Catholic high school uh, was like four blocks from my house. But in those days, you had to get permission from your parish uh, pastor to go to a different Catholic school. My mother wanted us to stay at the school we had been attending because we had been there. Long story short, the pastor of the new parish that we were in sent a letter. My mother asked for permission, and he gave my mother a sealed envelope. My mother said to me, never take a sealed envelope from one white person to another white person. Uh, and she opened it. And when she opened it, the pastor had given her permission for us to remain in our schools because he said, no matter where you, black kids are uneducable. So that was the crux of that. We can talk later. Uh, Vincent, why don't you talk about your experiences? Uh, well, I, uh, well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, I guess I, I'll tell my experiences in a broader way. Uh, so uh, my family is from Louisiana originally. Both my parents are, were born and raised there, and you know, both of them trace their families back, my father, probably to the original Europe, European settlement by the, the French in Louisiana uh, in the 18th century, my mother to the 19th century, but she also can trace her family back to the original colonial settlement of Maryland and North Carolina. Uh, so our roots are, you know, deeply uh, Catholic uh, in North America. So we, uh, we've, uh, sort of experienced American Catholicism 
in a way that isn't always typical uh, in the minds of a lot of American Catholics. It was not the Catholicism of the uh, big cities of the Northeast or Midwest. It was a more, almost more indigenous in a way, Catholicism that, that came with the French and the Spanish. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my parents left Louisiana after college and we were raised primarily in Washington, D.C. in the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. Uh, but interestingly, just to connect with uh, Herschel's story, uh, my uh, father did his undergraduate work slightly later than normal at Loyola University of Chicago, and uh, my first job was there, so I want to shout out to Loyola, one of our co-sponsors. Uh, but in the 60s, my parents moved to the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago, uh, where my sister, I had been, I was a couple years old, my sister was born in Chicago. Uh, we lived in St. Philip Neri Parish, uh, just a couple blocks away. But when my mother uh, took my sister to be baptized or arranged for my sister to be baptized, uh, she was refused uh, by the parish priest. He told her that there was no possible way that she could have her child baptized in that parish. And she said, well, I live in this parish. He said, you may live in this parish, but I will not perform the sacraments on your child in this parish uh, because it was a white parish. Uh, and so we, uh, my mother went to the cardinal and got the, the edict of the priest reversed. But I do think that was a very uh, difficult experience for them. They had never actually experienced that kind of racism in Catholic churches in Louisiana. The, the church was open to all. And the idea that, that a parish had, you know, sort of a racial structure to that, in, in, you know, in terms of the sacraments, was, was pretty shocking. So for a long time after that, we didn't go to mass uh, and resumed our attendance in the, uh, when we moved to the DC area, which also was not a place where the, the church was so ethnically identified in a much more diverse way, uh, the Catholic church thrived there. So anyway, I don't wanna to get too far into the details, but just to connect the stories and give you a little bit of my background, that's where we began. Thanks for thanks for sharing those those experiences. I you know let's I maybe if I we could step back a little bit and and um, kind of build on that by by bringing in um, you know provocative uh, uh, statement by uh, uh, Fordham's Brian Massingale in his book Racial Justice in the Catholic Church and and it it, it, it kind of connects I think to your experiences in in interesting ways but but you might also kind of contrast your differing experiences of the church with what he says. He, and he, um, he says, he describes the, the American Catholic Church as a white racist institution. Um, and he says, uh, what makes it white and racist is not the fact that the majority of its members are of European descent, nor the fact that many of its members engage in acts of malice or bigotry. Uh, what makes it white and racist is the pervasive belief that European aesthetics, music, theology, and persons, and only these, are standard, uh, normative, universal, and truly Catholic. And I, um, I just wanted to pose that that uh, statement and, and ask whether you agree with his assessment, whether that's consistent with your experience of the church um, in in the various places you've lived, or or to what extent you disagree with it. Uh, Vincent, why don't you start with this? One? Okay. Um, so um, yeah, building off what I had said before, I mean, I think uh, the church in the United States, the Catholic experience in the United States, is very diverse. Uh, and, you know, as I was beginning to say, uh, there is uh, a, there's an immigrant experience of Catholicism that's closely tied to the waves of immigration that occurred, uh, you know, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century. 
uh, and that is highly identified with the uh, big cities in the Northeast and Midwest. Um, and I guess in a way, uh, the church, the, the church in this country was very successful in assimilating European immigrants into the, the American mainstream. And in a sense, maybe they were too successful because in a sense, what I think that did was it created this uh, culture in which a lot of American Catholics were more about becoming American and increasingly over time, less about thinking about what it meant to be Catholic, what it might mean to be somewhat countercultural in the American context because of the need to succeed in, within the structures of the society as they existed seemed to trump everything else uh, that might have you know, come into conflict or, or change that narrative a bit. So we have a lot of books like how the Irish became white, how the Italians became white, uh, so, I mean, it seems the goal of assimilation was to become white. Uh, and as that happened, you know, it seems to me that there was a, a, a loss in some instances of some of the other values that Catholicism would bring that might question some of the assumptions about how race has developed in the United States. Racism was pervasive. It was everywhere. It's not just a question of what was going on in the ethnic enclaves of the big cities. Of course, it was, uh, you know, everywhere. But there were lots of things the church was trying to preach and the church was saying, uh, you know, particularly uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, uh, that uh, was inconsistent with what a lot of Catholics wanted to hear and what they were living uh, in their experiences of race in the United States. And in other words, I think what we saw in this country was actually a, an increasingly hostile uh, engagement uh, amongst ethnic Catholics uh, toward you know, Blacks in this country. Uh, and uh, I mean, Hashala's story, uh, I think, is a you know part of that, and mine as well. And you know, a real question that I think arises about why um, it was so important for the church in this country to uh, you know sort of situate itself in kind of this European mainstream way. Uh, and uh, I'm hearing that some people are having trouble hearing me, so maybe this is helping. Uh, if it's not, uh, let me know and I will, it is helping, okay. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, you know, I do think there's some truth to what he says. Uh, I think it's something that we can explore a little bit more deeply, but I'll let Rochelle add her thoughts. Yeah, let me just say on a lighter note, I was 18 years old before I stopped saying that I was Irish Catholic. I was taught by Irish Catholic nuns and priests and I don't know, you know, I had, I had literally started college and I was like, you are lots of things, but Irish Catholic, you gotta let go. Uh, but that says to me how strong the identification is with uh, European whites uh, and Catholicism, that it did not seem incongruous to me. And certainly none of the nuns or priests ever corrected me about that. Uh, yeah, so, and I fully understand that I was Roman Catholic, I, I get that. Um, so, you know, but I think much of what Vincent said is, is right and, and, and real, and, and I feel what he is saying, but let's take it to another direction in that same piece, I think you're, you're getting there, about the, the liturgy, uh, and I can start talking then about, you know, the um, criminal justice system in this country. Yeah, why don't, why don't we go there? I mean, uh, uh, Father Matthew talks about uh, 
interactions we had where um, you know, he, he felt that people questioned his legitimacy as a priest, right, because of, because of his race. Um, that there was a presumption that that a real priest is a white priest and 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 that a uh, an African American priest is lesser as a priest less authentic as a Catholic and um, uh, so uh, Herschel how, do, how what does that say to you about the liturgy and and I mean uh, I'm curious whether uh, you you know if either of you have have um, you know noticed a difference in terms of the the normativity of whiteness within uh, uh, black Catholic communities versus uh, uh, majority white Catholic communities. Does does um, does the, the 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 sort of assumption about Catholicism extend um, beyond the white Catholic community, or is it is it more pervasively a Catholic phenomenon? Yeah, I don't think it's it's more pervasively a Catholic phenomenon. I think this is what is at the core of racism in and of itself is that the legitimacy of whiteness is presumed in all occupations and vocations. There is a presumption of legitimacy given to my white male counterparts uh, every day that I walk into a criminal courts building. There is a presumption that they are lawyers, and I will, I will share this story also. I have an experiment because I I teach students how to try cases. And whenever I send a white male student and a black female student to court together, and I let them go before I get there, because at this point in my career, I can provide them, for lack of a better word, some protection uh, in the building, because I've just, you know, the janitor's normally there. Uh, but it has never failed when they go without me, that when I walk in the courtroom, the African-American woman is sitting in the audience with the family members, with people who are observing court. She is never in the well of the courtroom where lawyers are permitted to sit. And my white male student is sitting at counsel table. It has never failed. And when I ask her, why she is sitting back here, she says to me, because the judge or the sheriff told me to go have a seat. And when I ask my white male student, well, what the hell are you doing sitting at council table? He says, nobody stopped me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I would jump into a little bit about the liturgy in that, uh, just to give an a little bit of time to that part of your question. Um, you know, the idea, I think one of the great gifts of the Catholic Church is its uh, mission, uh, its uh, message of universality, and it's the way it transcends cultures. Um, and I'd have to say in my own experience, some of the most powerful masses I've attended around the world have been masses that have, you know, incorporated uh, aspects of local cultures. Uh, and where I've seen just extraordinary demonstrations of faith, uh, you know, through, um, you know, African dance and, uh, you know, Brazilian music and all these other things. But I do think a lot of American Catholics, uh, you know, resist the notion that those things can be part of a quote unquote normal experience of church. Um, and so again, the sort of, you know, European ideal uh, uh, that, you know, in, in 
imbues our society in the way Herschel just described in the professional sense of being a lawyer, of course, also imbues our society in the way we, we understand uh, how the mass is supposed to be and how we're supposed to present in church, how we're supposed to uh, you know, engage with one another in the context of, of our liturgies. So uh, yes, I mean, I think that's something we really have to think carefully about if we wanna break down uh, some of the structural racism that exists in our society and has either you know, invaded the church or has already you know, been a part of it. Rochelle, I took from your comments, you know, a sense that in some ways that uh, what Father Massingale is describing is just is sort of American Catholicism reflecting back uh, attitudes that are pervasive in America um, and not not necessarily changing those attitudes. And, and Vincent, it sort of connects up with your point about um, the desire of American Catholics, especially white American Catholics, to fit in, right, to be American and, and for better or for worse in some ways. Um, and, and that reminds me a little bit of, of some of the research that's been done on the attitudes that, that Catholics display across a range of, of questions. Um, and his research on, on the racial attitudes of white Catholics, uh, uh, Notre Dame political scientist Darren Davis uh, found, you know, I think uh, both reasons for optimism and, and maybe some self-reflection and criticism, uh, but he finds, you know, that, that Catholics, white Catholics have racial attitudes that, that on the, at a kind of broad level reflect those of white Americans more broadly, but then he also, when he looks across different measures of, of racial resentment, um, uh, finds that uh, white Catholics demonstrate uh, less, uh, I guess, uh, pervasively uh, resentful attitudes than either uh, white Baptists or, or white Protestants uh, more generally. I think he finds 40% of uh, white Catholics show uh, racial resentment across the four different measures that he's looking at versus 61% uh, for white Baptists and 47% and for uh, Protestants generally. You know, and there's something, a little something there for everybody in the sense that there, there's, there's, uh, it's less pervasive than among uh, white Baptists, but 40% still seems like a quite high number. Um, so, you know, what responsibility does, does the institutional church bear for, um, uh, the racism of white Catholics? Are there, are there kind of features of American Catholic teaching or the, of the, the church itself um, that, that reinforce these kinds of attitudes or that could more effectively be deployed to, to try to change them? Uh, what do you think of that, Vincent? Well, I mean, frankly, I think the teaching is, is powerful as an antidote uh, to those numbers, uh, you know, to moving those numbers. I think we have so many resources within our faith tradition and within its intellectual tradition and within our theology that would, uh, if, you know, carefully considered and, you know, well taught, uh, should be powerful weapons against racism. I mean, Catholics, Catholic social teaching being something I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about, I think makes, uh, you know, gives us a lot of, of, of uh, you know, information and a lot of uh, intellectual, uh, you know, heft uh, to engage, uh, to be anti-racist. But on the other hand, I do have to, I would think that in the development of this society, Catholics have often been on the front lines, ethnic Catholics in particular, of some of the most charged, you know, racial events uh, in, in our history, certainly in the 20th century. So if we think about things like school busting, busing here in Boston uh, and you know, neighborhood block busting uh, in big cities like Chicago and Detroit uh, and uh, you know, just neighborhood change in general in a lot of the cities and the strong identification with geography and parish that 
I think often made it very difficult for people to, you know, separate, uh, you know, sort of their claim of neighborhood uh, from sort of the reality that other people share the space. So, uh, you know, how that sort of has played out, you know, why we, the church has not, was not more aggressive in, you know, pushing, uh, you know, Catholics to be a little bit more uh, faithful to, to lots of church teachings, I think is complicated. I mean, I think it's a, just a, as a sociological matter, as a practical matter, as an economic matter, there were a lot of things going on. And Catholics were doing very good things in the cities for, for Blacks and other people of color through the schools and doing bad things uh, through uh, block busing and uh, housing policy. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated question. When I think about Catholic social thought and, and it, you know, its engagement with, with some of these questions, I agree with you that there are a lot of conceptual tools there to support an anti-racist um, um, uh, agenda or movement. The, one thing that strikes me about the, the sort of body of Catholic social teaching is, um, you know, the, 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 the focus on economic justice for sure, um, but maybe, uh, the less frequent discussion of questions of race, um, you know, that it's just not as, it, although the, I think the teaching of the church on this kind of conceptual level is clear, um, it maybe doesn't get, you know, questions of race don't get discussed quite as much. Um, and, you know, as, as some of these more um, uh, economically focused uh, justice questions within that, within that body of teaching. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, it's sort of a matter of emphasis rather than, than, than actual teaching. But I, I mean, do you share that intuition or is it, am I wrong about that? No, no, I would agree that the, the issue of race is not as explicitly treated uh, in Catholic social teaching as, you know, might be useful for this purpose. Of course, Catholic social teaching is being written, you know, for a global audience and isn't necessarily uh, going to pick up, I guess, on the sort of specifics of each nation's or each culture's, you know, issues in this regard. But I think where it's helpful, so I don't disagree with that, but I think where it's helpful is on those structural issues like economic justice, on its uh, sort of strong emphasis as a sort of against uh, the uh, kind of individualism that is so pervasive in American thought and in the way we, are, we look at societal problems. So, you know, concepts like solidarity and a more complex understanding of justice that has a more you know communitarian focus i think can be really helpful in the united states and in the american context in breaking down some of the myths we have about how our society works and if we can break those myths down we will start i think to do a lot of racial hearing healing just by virtue of the fact that we're starting to look at one another as members of the same community and we're starting to see the suffering uh, that structures of our society are imposing in particularly bad ways on black people, for instance, because of the racist history of the nation and the history of slavery. Uh, Rochelle, I, you know, we talked about the connections with the criminal justice system. Do you see explicit connections between uh, the racial attitudes of white Catholics and some of the pathologies in the criminal justice system that you've experienced? I mean, apart from uh, what you already described in, you know, in terms of the, the sort of general overlap in, in racial attitudes, but are there, are there specific connections between the, the, the failures of the church uh, to combat racism within its ranks and, and our, you know, society's failures on the criminal justice front? Uh, the short answer is yes. 
Uh, let me just sort of get right into it and give you an ex you know, uh, what I've seen and also what Chicago has always felt to me like a very Catholic city. You know, the parishes, you can name the churches, you know where the churches are located, you know that, that they are segregated. You know, we have always had cardinals and bishops who were national uh, figures, not just local parish uh, or uh, local bishops. Uh, and because we have in Chicago a high Catholic population, many of uh, the folks who are police officers and firemen and working in uh, county or government positions uh, in the judiciary are uh, Catholic. And they have come out of the Catholic tradition. They have come from Catholic uh, high schools, Catholic universities. Uh, and they bring with them, uh, I think, and, um, for lack of a better word, an ambivalence or they don't see the contradiction in their conduct in their workspace uh, because the language and the education, again, that's, I, I learned a moral code from going to Catholic school. I learned most of my values from going uh, to a Catholic school. The benefit I had was that I then went home to a uh, black family that discussed this and talked it out and what that looks like being African-American also. And so I think, uh, yeah, the church, is, the, the church is, is implicated. We all are. We, we all, you know, there's no, I don't think this is about pointing fingers, but this is about talking about the structures and the people who control other people and why they might uh, do so. And part of the, the history of this is when you have an immigrant population coming in, uh, the goal is, I think, I have thought, is I've got to be better than African Americans. I cannot be lumped with that group of the citizenry. And in order to do that, then I will try to express my own feelings that yes, white people are better than minorities. And again, Chicago is, uh, you know, King said it, Chicago was the most racist city he had ever been in. And this was a man, you know, uh, that grew up and lived in the South in Georgia and Birmingham. So, and there is a uh, pride in Chicago communities about living separate and apart. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, everybody knew when you had crossed the dividing line, and yet you have police officers, to get more to the point, taking young black boys into white neighborhoods and dropping them off after dark, saying, get home the best way you can. Uh, so, you know, and, and as the immigrant population has uh, melted more into the white American, they have adopted the white American psyche and it is racist to its core. And so we have police departments that are just racist. And I said to you guys earlier, and I'm, I'll say this and I'll you know, uh, let somebody else speak. 
uh, we get the police that we want. I have always believed that. These are not outliers. These men and women are our fathers, our mothers, our sisters, our brothers. My uncle was on the Chicago police force for over 30 years and then a sheriff. Uh, so they go, they, they go home, they go home to people just like we do. So any of their racist beliefs, we are implicated in, we feed them, we iron their uniforms, you know? Uh, so it's, it's not just that we have a police force that is racist, uh, and it, a criminal justice system that is stunningly racist. Again, these people go home to the rest of us. So we are all in this together and we pay them to enforce racist, abusive practices, to over-criminalize black conduct, to over-punish black conduct. Uh, you know, the war on drugs uh, was, everybody said that's, that sounds right. Yeah, we all, we, everybody wants to have a war on drugs. Nobody talked about the soldiers and the casualties. And that's where the conversation needs to go to now. These slogans don't work. We must talk about who are we talking about and know their connection to the rest of us in community. One of the things that struck me, I think you both have touched on this um, in different ways, but the, the, the way in which the parish structure um, sort of uh, feeds on um, underlying pathologies. And so um, the, you know, the, the segregation in Chicago, the, the geographic segregation of neighborhoods is reflected in the segregation of parishes. And then that, that uh, you know, and there are, you know, really positive things that come out of the geographic organization of the church and the, the overlapping ties in the parish structure. And I'm thinking here of this a great book by John McGreevy about how protective the parish structure was of immigrant communities when they arrived and um, created a really rich social life for those communities. But at the same time, um, it, it does lead to a kind of uh, insider-outsider mentality, right? And to the extent that uh, the underlying uh, community is, is extremely segregated, the parish structure becomes segregated and, and then the attitudes of Catholics kind of reflect that, that uh, sociological reality. And I, um, Vincent, having lived in, in, in a lot of different places, um, you know, I, can you talk about your experience of parish life in, in Louisiana versus, uh, versus uh, the Northeast or, or the Midwest and, and how the parish can kind of uh, either counteract or reinforce the, the sort of racist ideas? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think at, at, the, at the base of this, we have to remember just how racist housing policy has been in this country and uh, you know how hard uh, this nation worked to make sure that black people did not uh, have real meaningful opportunities to uh, acquire wealth through the purchase of property. Or if they did purchase property, they were limited to you know, very, you know, very sharply segregated areas. So during the time when the government was handing out money, you know, through the VA and the FHA and all this thing that built the great middle class in this country for a while, uh, you know, black people were either excluded from that or were forced to buy in areas where those investments would not, uh, you know, not mature uh, in, or would actually, de you know, become devalued for all kinds of reasons. So, 
you know, when you layer onto that, you know, a highly geographic understanding of parish in big cities, that's going to really uh, change the dynamic. So in the South, for instance, you know, you had social segregation uh, that existed and you had efforts to give blacks a little bit more autonomy by creating African-American parishes in the 50s in particular uh, so that they wouldn't be forced to just be observers, but they were always allowed to go to churches where, wherever they wanted to. Uh, and people move through the society uh, as Catholics in ways that I th don't think were necessarily the same in some of the big cities in the Midwest in particular. I found the Midwest to be probably the most segregated big city experience that I have ever experienced um, in general. Um, I found the DC area to be probably the least uh, when it came to the ability for people to kind of move freely through the, the, the residential areas uh, of the city. I think there was enough of a large African-American population there uh, and enough of an understanding that African-Americans made up a substantial portion of the Catholic community in Washington, D.C. and, and Maryland, um, that um, it was not a shock you know, to see black people in Catholic churches uh, even though, of course, there was residential uh, discrimination there as, as there was in every, every other place. But I think there was a level of education and a lot of level of wealth there that allowed for black people to move a little bit more freely. New York was, you know, kind of in between and, you know, Boston, not so great. Very small black population here, highly segregated as well, very ethnic city. So I guess in a way, the more ethnic uh, a lot of these cities were, the more they became attached to these geographic notions of neighborhood and the harder it became in many instances for black people to, to you know, move freely and uh, get you know, new housing opportunities. I think there was a piece in the New York Times just the other, yesterday uh, with films of black children being accosted in the mid 1970s in Queens in the neighborhood of Rosedale, uh, you know, because there was such a fear that um, you know, black people would, you know, take over the neighborhood. So, you know, it's, a, it's been a real issue in the development of our residential neighborhoods in this country. Um, so before we turn to some questions from the audience, I thought it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on, on what the, the institutional church could do um, to be a more meaningful participant in, in current conversations about racial justice and and police violence. I mean, what are the what are some concrete things you think that the Catholic community or the, the institutional church can do in that regard, Urshela? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, and this goes for every. They can do what all the rest of us have got to do, and that is where we are in our churches. Have these discussions, and the lack of you know these discussions make us uncomfortable. Is just it's it's too late in the universe to say that. Uh, it's time to get over your discomfort and and look at what in your in your parish in your neighborhood can change and we need to strategize in in each community because different communities have different issues and identify the three primary structural changes that need to be made this is not going to all unravel by the end of the summer. Uh, so making that commitment and then institutionalizing committees to look at social justice issues, institutionalizing committees to go to 26 in California 
and watch their criminal justice process. I'm certain that 95% of the people would walk out of there appalled at what passes for justice. To go, you know, to see what it's like to be incarcerated, to have discussions about uh, the mass incarceration of people of color, of men of color, and what the implications of that are. Uh, and then so to educate the community about these issues with a commitment to making an effort, a directed effort towards at least one, one change. We cannot do it all, you know. So my advice is, you know, I would like for everybody to stay hopeful because I don't believe that pessimistic people have the energy to make a revolution. So um, I, you have to stay hopeful. Uh, and it, it, it's, that's how you do your work. I also don't think you can work well if you do not believe that your efforts will pay off. I think we should stay mindful. Again, check ourselves before you know, your finger goes out. Ask yourself what you did yesterday uh, you know, to try to make it better. And then I think, you know, you have to stay prayerful. And what I mean by that is that any religious text that you read, if you understand it fully, I think it is a call for equality, whatever religion you profess. So I think if you take seriously uh, what the teachings are, and I'll say this, I think if you take, as I had taken as a child, the uh, teachings of the Catholic Church, we, we'd be further along than we are. So not to have that schizophrenic disconnect from Sunday through for in the rest of the week. Yeah, I guess I would point to three things, one on the parish level, one on sort of the Catholic institutional level, and then one on the personal level for Catholics. Um, on the parish level, you know, I think we have to start you know, integrating these conversations into our faith life. Uh, and uh, to build on what Rochelle just said about, uh, you know, what our faith actually teaches, what, it, what do the gospels say? Uh, what has our church, uh, you know, developed in terms of its responses to these problems? And are we actually taking those responses seriously? So for instance, in our parish, which is not very diverse, um, we have, uh, we're doing the Just Faith program. Uh, and we're doing the, the, the uh, program on, you know, just racial, racial equity and justice. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're calling people together to talk about race and to talk about the issues uh, because it's something that needs to be discussed and it's an uncomfortable conversation. But we're doing it in the context of our faith life. We are integrating, you know, gospel passages and other, you know, passages from, from the Hebrew scriptures and you know, Catholic social teaching, all of that is informing the conversation and making it a part of our lived faith experience. So that's one in the parish. In our institutions, I think we have to start looking at our Catholic schools, our Catholic universities, our Catholic hospitals, whatever. If we're a Catholic hospital, we have to understand and think about what is going on in terms of the disparities in healthcare. In Catholic universities, I've been in academia for 30 years. I've worked at three Catholic universities and you know, I'm launching an effort with the president at Boston College on a forum for racial justice. It's our way of trying to like dig more deeply into these issues and to live them out in the community that we have on, on the university campus and use the resources we have 
as educators, as scholars, uh, to, to attack this problem, to attack this cancer. And then individually, individual Catholics need to start educating themselves about the kinds of issues that Urshela was, was highlighting, the things I mentioned about, for instance, housing discrimination, criminal justice. There's a lot of information out there that uh, you, know, you can read. Maybe you can commit uh, to, with a group of, of other friends or by yourself to, I'm gonna learn a little bit about mass incarceration. I'm gonna read the new Jim Crow. I'm gonna read Brian Stevenson's uh, Just Mercy. Um, and I'm going to dig into these topics to understand a perspective that perhaps I wouldn't have normally um, had or wouldn't have normally received. And ask yourself, I mean, are those compelling to you in any way? And if they are, what do you want to do as a citizen about them? How will you engage the body politic to start asking for change? So as a Catholic, what are your responsibilities as a citizen when you get this information and you hear these stories and you hear about these injustices? So those would be my, my ideas. Thanks so much to both of you. Let's um, turn to some of these uh, great questions from the audience. Uh, uh, Danny asks, uh, what principles from our faith and Catholic social teaching can we draw from to better understand the call to defund the police? <laughs> well, I think there's, it, it seems like a direct path to me, but uh, I think first we got to get clear because this, this defund the police is getting distorted uh, into something that I don't believe that it's, it's intended to be. Uh, people will, so the first thing you, you need to do is get a clear understanding of what it means to defund the police and, and uh, understand that what people are asking for is a reallocation of resources for social services for community needs, for mental health services, for better housing, uh, that we put our money where our mouth is. It's not, I don't think there's, there's anyone that expects to be taken seriously moving toward, let's not have any police officers. That's not what it is. So people need to get clear that we are all talking about the same thing before we start yelling at each other. Uh, and then you need to look at, again, and hold the police accountable because most police forces will tell you that they have done, I think it was start, it started out years ago, it was called sensitivity training. And now they have, you know, training about race or whatever. And I've observed some of these. It's real hard, though, when they're taught by racists. So you've got to be careful and you can, and this is public information, which is the good news is you can go find it for yourself. You can look at what the trainings are for the police force. You can see what money is being spent. And I will just say this, you can start thinking differently about certain things. If the police are paying out, if your city is paying out millions of dollars, for wrongful death actions, your own self-interest in non-corrupt policing should be behind this and always mindful. And Chicago has paid out and will continue to pay out millions and millions of dollars for police misconduct. Vincent, anything to add to that or? Um... No, I, I think uh, Hershella put it 
put it beautifully. I mean, remember the kinds of things that Catholic social thought engages are things like, what do human beings need to live in a, a dignified existence? And supporting the kinds of social programs that, that Herschel discussed uh, is a great way to you know, create the conditions in society that will start to undermine these antisocial behaviors and other things that are you know, driving a lot of the fear, and there's a lot of fear in this country, uh, of, of the other. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the Catholic uh, social tradition or the, the Catholic moral tradition um, uh, more broadly as it comments on, on institutions is it's, you know, it's, it's great pragmatism and, and um, uh, you know, in, in thinking about uh, policing strategies, you know, it, 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 there's, there's, a, there's just a richness to, to its um, willingness to experiment with different solutions and, you know, but within the framework that really values human dignity and freedom. And so um, if there are ways to, you know, ways other than coercion and violence to, to, to achieve a, you know, a, an orderly society, now that strikes me as, as very much uh, harmonious with, with, with that tradition. Um, here's a, a more personal reflection. Um, uh, my grandfather, this is from Michael, uh, who was an Irish and German Catholic in rural Minnesota, used to tell me stories about being chased home from school by the Klan as a child. Uh, perhaps naively, I inferred from these stories that there was a kind of natural bond between African Americans and Catholics, including white Catholics, at least insofar as they shared a common experience of being marginalized by the dominant Protestant majority. Um, do you think that such an affinity have, has ever existed as a social dynamic in American society, or has the divisive power of racism been too strong uh, to allow it at the at the at the higher level, um, the sort of macrocosmic level. I'm not sure. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'll add to this. I was um, uh, listening to this podcast, Slow Burn, which is focused on this season is focused on David Duke and his rise in Louisiana and 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 his history with the Klan, but also the way he uh, very specifically kind of broadened the invitation of the Klan to include white Catholics and um, uh, so. Can you comment on that, the kind of the shared experience of marginalization and how that should pull us together, but then this feeling of, of that being overcome by uh, racism in the broader society? Um, Vincent, do you want to take that on? Sure. Um, you know, I think this is a, a, a fascinating issue that, you know, has woven itself throughout the history of the United States. Why is it that people who have been marginalized, who have suffered, who have been brutalized in so many different ways by an economic system or by people who have captured so much of the nation's wealth uh, or so many, many resources for themselves, why have, those, why have those people, the marginalized amongst us, not joined forces? Why have we not found a way to, to unify? There are signs that maybe that's happening now, which is very encouraging, but uh, over the course of our history, it was remarkably easy for elements in our political life and in our economic life, uh, individuals to divide and conquer. Uh, and I mean, one of those forces of division or one of those ways of dividing, I think was what I mentioned at the beginning, this creation of the, the notion of whiteness, which allowed people to at least believe that they were escaping marginalization because they, at least they weren't black. Um, but, um, but I think it was more than that. I mean, there has to be some uh, you know, understanding, and clearly there's a lot of history that shows a lot of these groups did work together early on. I mean, the Irish and Blacks uh, were often the poor uh, living in shared neighborhoods in the big cities. Uh, the Italians, um, you know, 
But at some point, you know, the, 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 Italian, the Italians and the Irish leave and the blacks are left behind and there's no affinity anymore or there wasn't in these past uh, situations. So something was done or something was going on structurally in the society that, you know, would cleave these people from each other. Uh, and to me, that was a great way of preventing the kind of uh, unification of, of marginalized individuals that might challenge some of the economic and other systems in this country that don't work for, for most of us. So uh, it's, it's a conundrum, but maybe now people are starting to see that, you know, in a sense, we've been duped. We've been duped into hating each other um, and we're paying the cost. Uh, and maybe now it's time to fight. Rochelle, do you, do you have any, anything to add to that? No, you can take another question. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to combine two questions here. You know, uh, someone asked, um, you know, so we can't, uh, this is Joanna's question, um, we can't get all the changes done that we want. What is the change that American Catholics are best positioned to make? Um, like, um, and I'll, I'll add this to a previous question that, that talked about the parish and, and, and it kind of plays off some of our conversation about uh, the interaction between the parish structure and geographic segregation in places like Chicago and, and Boston. Um, and uh, the, the, Samuel says, many of us see efforts to reach out to sister parishes um, uh, as, a, as a possible solution, but this is rarely a two-way exchange. Um, how do we create a broader local experience uh, that would have to cut against the grain of segregated neighborhoods in favor of the larger church experience? And he adds, I, I love being Catholic and I'm sad that I have to go out of town or downtown to see black, brown, and Asian faces at mass. So how do, you know, what, what are the, if we're thinking about the, you know, our earlier discussion, the, the, the kind of three things, concrete things that you talked about, what are the, what are the, what are the top priorities there and, and what can we do at the, at the local parish level to overcome uh, the, the segregation and difference? Well, I, I think, you know, this is a time, this is a time of opportunity. What we have seen, uh, what I've seen over the last weeks are uh, a lot of white people in the streets with Black Lives Matter signs. Uh, now, if they mean it and they are uh, churchgoers, then there should be now an opportunity for reciprocity, for, uh, you know, the the pancake breakfasts at our parish this week and at yours, you know, three weeks from now. Uh, and, and let me say this, it's not just, you know, uh, Catholics, but I'm, I, it just popped into my head, Dr. King's statement that the most segregated hour in America was church, was Sunday morning. Uh, so if, if that remains true, then the goal has to be how to unsegregate Sunday morning if nothing else. Uh, so past failed attempts can't really hold us back. Now we can talk about and how to act, you know, to do those things and get into some details, but it's got to be a willingness to want to do that. And then I think you've got to have a longer discussion that this panel won't allow for concrete steps uh, based in what your community is, who your community is who you are going to be doing this with on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis uh, that will make it change. Yeah, I would just add to that, you know, here's an opportunity for us to maybe ask for some leadership from the bishops and from the institutional church. I mean, can we rethink 
how the parish is supposed to work. I mean, we understand why geographic parishes were created and they did a lot of good, uh, and, but they also did some harm. And, you know, the harm is being, you know, kind of strengthened by the other issues in our society, uh, like housing discrimination and economic uh, inequality. Uh, and, you know, if we kind of rest on the notion that, well, you know, you just go to the closest church to your house or in the town where you live or whatever, we're just going to reinforce that. So what can we be doing, uh, you know, in our parishes, uh, you know, in our conversations with the bishops uh, to rethink how the parish is supposed to work? Uh, and maybe the pandemic is giving us an opportunity. A lot of people aren't going to church in person right now. We're doing a lot of things uh, online and virtually. That might be a great opportunity to like build relationships, uh, you know, with other communities that we wouldn't normally be be present with or to, uh, and to start thinking about well, how can we rethink how we worship? How can we share, you know, different uh, styles of, of of liturgy together and learn from one another and and sort of pray uh, in ways that bring us uh, together as Catholics uh, within our tradition, but not recognizing the diversity that that tr tradition embraces. So I guess we need to be a little creative and we need to take some risks and do some things differently. We, we don't have to do this the way we've always done it. There's nothing I think in the gospels or in uh, the, the magisterium of the church that says the parish has to look a certain way. It has to be a geographic neighborhood. I mean, I, I don't think so, but if it does, I'm sure there's some, some give to that too. You, you mentioned the the leadership of the church. I mean, do you do you, do you sense a reluctance to to kind of make this a, a, a top priority to make the question of racial justice um, to put it on par with some of the other things that that the bishops talk about quite a bit? And I, you know, um, uh, should they make this a higher priority in their in their public pronouncements, in their in their kind of uh, prophetic uh, statements about about American society? Well, I would say yes. I mean, look, nothing has sorry, <laughs> nothing has been more distorting in this culture than race and the the history that has come to us from slavery. I mean, it's and the fact that we don't hear about it as more from our our church leaders, I think, is very disturbing. Uh, I mean, so yes, yes. But I'll let Rochelle jump in. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Rochelle. No, no. You 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 are uh, know more about this than me, and you said exactly what I was going to say. It, they they got to up their game. It's got to be, be prioritized. Um, so uh, building on this, how, uh, and, uh, how well do you think that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops letter on racism, the Open Wide Our Hearts letter, um, grapples with racism in the, in the church? Do you think it was, isn't it, you know, an effective statement? Or, I mean, I th it was a start and it was, I was happy to see it. I think these statements tend to be cautious. Um, they aren't prophetic. They aren't, um, you know, they don't push as hard as they need to push. They say things that need to be said, tis true, but I think we need some real kind of powerful moral leadership at this time. I just think this country is hungry right now for you know, a kind of moral engagement around issues that matter. Uh, and I think you know, the Catholic Church is in a great position, you know, given its pervasiveness around the country, to really be transformative in this regard. And I just don't know if all these statements really do that. Uh, they, they certainly you know, keep the issue warm and put it out there. But 
I think we may need more. I mean, do you have any theories about the reluctance of the bishops to, to speak more forcefully on this issue or? or um... I'm not sure that they know, and this goes to leadership, because to me, a lot of it was, but on the other hand, um, which says that there was a striving to balance. And I think you can't balance racism and anti-racism. They're not the same moral e equivalent. And it felt like they weren't sure who was going to be reading this. Um, and so it felt like not a firm statement about leadership, but a statement about, uh, we're still thinking about this. And it was a good effort. I'm not saying I read it. it, it they acknowledged certain things. But it didn't feel like the, as a moral leader, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, command to do God's work. Yeah, I just want to jump in real quick to add, they have done it. You know, in, during segregation, some of the bishops in, uh, were, were extraordinary in their moral leadership. Uh, you know, the, the Archbishop of New Orleans, the Archbishop of Washington, the Archbishop of Washington desegregated the schools and the Catholic schools in the 1940s. Uh, and, you know, he made it clear that racism was a sin. The Archbishop of New Orleans did it later, but he made it clear racism is a sin and it is wrong. And he excommunicated people who fought him. Now, you know, the times have changed and there may be different ways of going about this. But I guess what I'm saying is it's not that they don't know how to do it. And it's not that they haven't done it. They have done it. So maybe, you know, they could think a little bit of, well, what drove those bishops and archbishops to do what they did at that time? And are we in a similar time now? Uh, just since I'm talking to two law professors, um, uh, this question seems particularly appropriate. Is there anything you'd like to see uh, Catholic law students, Catholic lawyers in particular doing? Um, and is there something Catholic law students could do to build a community that supports people of all backgrounds and educates ourselves to build a more just future? And I, I would think this would include Catholic law students not just at Catholic law schools, but um, in both in in in, in both uh, Catholic and secular institutions. What do you think, Rochelle? Yeah, I would like to see them step up and and take the lead in in what again their faith has has taught them. I think that they should uh, both take opportunities to. There are lots of volunteer opportunities for law students to get in community in a real way and not as a, uh, you, can't, you can't go sightseeing through black communities and think you're being helpful, you know? It, the black community adjacent to your law school should not, this shouldn't be a bus tour. This should be about community engagement. I also think that they should do, this is a shameless plug, I also think that they should do clinical work. It doesn't have to be criminal work, but it should be clinical work where they work with people who cannot afford attorneys on housing issues, on we have an entrepreneurship clinic at Chicago uh, that helps people start up businesses. These things make a change and a real change in people's lives. So I'm not just saying, you know, you need to do, uh, a criminal clinic. There are lots of civil clinics that impact. There's health care issues. There's health care law 
there's benefits law. There are all types of things that students can get involved in and donate their time and talent as a way of giving to uh, other people. So to the Catholic law students, wherever you are, I would say, I would want to speak to you in, you know, sort of these very kind of spiritual and religious terms, right? You're now being given, you've been given these extraordinary tools. And I hope you view becoming a lawyer not simply as a way to get a good job, but as a vocation, as something that can be not only transformative to the people that you can assist and help, but also transformative to you personally, but also transformative of the entire society. I mean, again, engage the law, engage the legal system, engage issues from the perspective of someone who is conscious of the structures of society and how they can harm individuals and how people are completely sometimes incapable of, of protecting themselves. Uh, and you now are a person who's in the position to actually make change, to move, press justice forward and think of justice in the most complex way possible, all the different ways that it can be, uh, that it can matter and it can happen. Uh, and, you know, you know, just imbue yourself with the fire about justice and, you know, remember that, you know, being a lawyer is a, is a privilege and uh, you have an opportunity to do great good. Uh, so that would be my, my hope. So we're, we're over time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask one last question and then give you a final um, after this question. So this isn't the last question. This is the next to the last question. And then you'll have a chance to, um, to give your final words. But I, I just thought this was an interesting question. It, um, uh, Julia asks uh, you know, whether we have any um, recommendations for historical resources geared towards high school or college age classes about uh, some of the history we've been discussing. And, um, it's not more specific than that. So I guess I'd just ask you if you, um, you have a, a particular book that you would recommend to people interested in learning more about uh, questions of racial justice. And I'm, since we talked a little bit about geographic segregation, I'm gonna, I'll start and then um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But um, one of my favorite books, not a perfect book, but it's a really interesting book about the history of the, the sort of legal contributors to residential segregation uh, the Pervasiveness of Residential Segregation is a book by a guy named Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law, which talks about um, the history of, of zoning, of you know, racially restrictive covenants, the, uh, the Federal Housing Authority, um, Federal Housing Administration's um, you know, uh, selective guarantee of, um, of, uh, of uh, mortgages in, in racially homogeneous neighborhoods and the way that all of that kind of combined to contribute to um, really pervasive residential segregation in the United States. Um, Herschella, any book, any reading recommendations? Yes, I have a reading recommendation. It's, it's 500 pages. Okay, so don't just think you'll read over the weekend. But it's called Stamp from the Beginning. Uh, it's a young scholar out of Florida. I can't think of his name, but if you want to email me, I will, I will send you his name. But it's called Stamp from the Beginning, and it is a history of racist thought starting from, you know, when the Mayflower landed uh, to the present day. And it's, it's an extraordinary book. Yeah, and I, I think I mentioned, too, uh, Us Mercy uh, by Brian Stevenson and um, uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I think those are two uh, well worth reading. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
I, yeah, I'll leave it there because there's so many. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, those, are, those are all excellent recommendations. So now the last question, which is just to give you an opportunity to uh, get the last word, you know, say uh, any, any wrap up that you'd like to offer here before we, before we close things up. Hershella? Yeah, I'd just like to say, you know, thanks for uh, making me a part of this. And that again, in the, you know, 40 years that I have been practicing uh, criminal law, if we must get to some point of compassion to understanding that not, no one is as bad as their worst act. Uh, and that when you talk about, when we talk about, well, people should get what they deserve. I'm sorry, I'm getting so I put this up. When people get what they deserve, be very careful again about how you pray because I don't want to get what I might deserve for my worst actions. I'm with Brian Stevenson on this. I want a little mercy template with me. So when you think about what you have coming, don't always think about, I deserve to make X amount of dollars. I deserve to live here. I deserve to, you know, uh, be able to go on vacations or all of that. Think about how maybe you had to, you have to give something up so that everybody can get more of what they deserve. And that if you don't get all the good you deserve, it might balance out, you know, you might not have to pay up for all the bad that you deserve. So I think people need to find their, their spot. There's plenty of work to be done. You don't have to go looking for work. Whatever interests you in America, in any sort of social context, I would dare to say, has a racial component to it and a racist component to it that should be addressed. That's it for me. Vincent, final thoughts. Well, I, I, I will end on a hopeful note and a happy note, I think. You know, I am very, very blessed to have inherited from my grandparents in South Louisiana this extraordinary Catholic faith tradition. And despite all of the uh, you know, barriers they faced and all of the, the issues they had to deal with around race, they never flagged in their view that this faith uh, was their rock uh, and this church was their home. Uh, and, um, you know, so, you know, I'm very proud of what they, what they built for me. Uh, and so I'm going to fight for it. And, um, and I want us to understand how many people in this church, you know, despite all of these issues, not just from the church, but, you know, from the society, uh, love it and want it to be a home for all of us. And so I just ask you all to, to, you know, join with us, join with the people uh, in your communities that you might not normally see who are part of this great you know, Catholic tradition and uh, help us to you know, really make it the best it can be and also help us to make it a real agent and force for change in a society that really needs healing and a society that really needs hope. Well, I, I wanna thank you both for a really a rich and, and uh, inspiring conversation. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be here and allowing me to, to be a little bit of an interloper and uh, 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 share the stage with you. Um, it's really been a, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've learned a, a lot, um, so, so thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Eduardo.
Thanks for sharing. Great. Thank you. Thank all of you again. On behalf of the Bowman Christie Institute, my name is Michael Le Chevalier. I'm Associate Director here for those of you who are joining us for the first time. Uh, and this is part of a, a broader commitment that the Lumen Christi Institute has to support uh, the depth and breadth of the Catholic intellectual tradition. You can see some of our past um, programs with Darren Davis or Andrew Prevost on our website. Um, we are also uh, launching a summer seminar that was postponed from this year to next year um, for Thea Bowman scholarship students. Uh, and any donation that you make during this time mentioning Thea Bowman in the comment will go to support this seminar that helps uh, bring um, black students who are going to Catholic schools together to interface the Catholic intellectual tradition and the broader African-American theological and cultural tradition in conversation. Um, you can find out more on our website for any of our upcoming events. Um, and otherwise, I wanna thank our co-sponsors who have um, helped make this a successful event today. Um, the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago, the Hank Center at Loyola University, um, the Boston College uh, Law School Program, and America Media. Um, otherwise, please join me one more time in thanking our panelists for helping us engage in a difficult um, but uh, a pressing topic in this time. Uh, and thank you especially, um, Eduardo and Dean Pennell there for helping moderate this conversation. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you.